Recording in progress. Okay, hello everyone. Good evening. Welcome to the uh, June 2nd, 2022 Historical Advisory Board meeting. Um, we're all, well, not all of us are here, but we'll do a roll call. Okay, start with a roll call. Um, President Zaxby. I am present. Uh, board member Lau. Present. Uh, Sanchez. Recording uh, in progress. That item. Uh, next item is agenda changes and discussions. Does anyone want to make a change or dis discuss the agenda? I'm not seeing any raised hands. So moving on. Uh, the next item is oral communications. And this is an item where members of the public can speak to this board about uh, issues that are relevant to the board, but that are not on the agenda this evening. Do we have any speakers on this item? We have one person with their hand raised. That's Mike Van Dien. And it's regarding something that's not on the agenda tonight? Okay, let's, let's hear from Mike. Mr. Van Dien? I think you're muted or you're waiting for something. Okay, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Okay, uh, uh, thank you. Uh, and thanks to the board for listening uh, to my comment tonight. Uh, I don't know if the board is aware of the freedom of information text between Mary Ashcraft, Alan Ty, Andrew Thomas, and Doug Biggs regarding the historic buildings on McKay Avenue. But if not, I'll be submitting a copy of to this meeting of those text records. Everybody in the city needs to see and understand that the last thing that Secretary of the Historical Advisory Board, Alan Tai, or Mayor Ashcraft, or Planning Director Andrew Thomas cares about is the history of these buildings on McKay. Alan Tai has basically been strategizing with the mayor and developer Doug Biggs about how to keep the state of California from recognizing the historic importance of the World War II U.S. Maritime Service Officer School. These texts were definitely not meant to be seen by the citizens of Alameda. I believe the HAB was misled by their secretary last year when the HAB voted to demolish the historic Merchant Marine Officer School buildings. After all, it seemed to be a very important official report that Alan Tai was waving. You were reading the Page and Turnbull extensive 1996 report. And Alan Tai said that this report represented the fact that a conclusion had been made that they, those buildings did not qualify for the National Register of Historic Places. But that report was an opinion only. And it was an opinion about a question that was not being asked. Page and Turnbull's opinion about the unimpressive state of the McKay buildings or the opinion that their historical significance is not worthy of protection or qualifying for the National Register of Historic Places is just an opinion of a question that was not asked. What is being asked today is, are, uh, are all of the buildings that are the original U.S. Maritime Officer School buildings on McKay standing right now 
as a district, are they worthy of nomination to the National Register of Historic Places? And that has been submitted to the state of California Office of Historic Preservation in a thorough, detailed application that documents the important historical resource that this district represents. Were you aware that more than 50% of the campus's original square footage is still standing today? And when you look at the district that comprises this, these buildings, you have the representation of two very unique classroom buildings, and you have three original barracks buildings, the mess hall and an infirmary. That's a good surviving representation of the original campus. This is not about having an architectural work of art in front of you. This is about preserving a unique piece of the city's history and honoring the merchant mariners who were trained here in Alameda to sail the victory and liberty ships that were the key to the country's success in World War II. Just because you were misled once doesn't mean you have to be misled again. The city is planning to come back and have you rubber stamp their political agenda once again. Your job, as it's stated in the board's purpose, is to preserve and protect our historical resources, and I urge you to do so. And by the way, were you aware that 80% of Page and Turnbull's work is designing adaptive reuse of historic buildings. And they have stated in writing that they were never asked or hired by Doug Biggs or the city of Alameda to do an adaptive reuse study of these historic buildings for the new wellness center as promised by Doug Biggs in our election of 2019. Please consider your responsibility. I know that you were trying to sort through all the different information that was coming at you last year. And I appreciate your efforts. And I know that you did it all in good faith. And I just wanted to bring this forward because this issue has not gone away. And these, these historic buildings can be reused by our community and for a wellness center. Thank you very much. Thank you for your comments. Are there other speakers? There are no, more, no further uh, public comments at this okay. time. So um, we'll circle back to oral communications later in the meeting, but uh, the next item on the agenda is written communications. And we've had a number of emails, I'm sure everybody's received um, regarding some of the issues on the agenda tonight. So I'm not gonna go back to that. Is there anything new that we should be uh, aware of? Nobody, staff, is there anything that's come up recently that we haven't seen? I think we um, provided all the comments that okay. we received, yeah. Is there a way in the future that we can kind of gather those together and not receive them individually um, in our email stream? <laughs> It'd be nice to have them uh, um, as a single email from the city or, or something like that, because it, it kind of, for me, it was, it was a lot to sort of take in while during a busy day. Yeah, we do. Um, uh, create a, a file that we post online. And so maybe um, at the time that we do that, we can send that to you guys. Um, so yeah, just let us know that there's stuff to read. Yeah, but otherwise we were just passing the correspondence as we are receiving them. Right. So a lot I, of times I, they're coming in hours before the, the meeting. Yeah, I understand yeah. that. Yeah, I don't, I don't object to the communications. It just was a lot of email. Um, 
so no written communications, uh, regular agenda items. Item 7, 7A is a public workshop to review and comment on the April 2022 draft of the housing element. Uh, do we have a, a presentation tonight or are we just gonna jump in? Uh, Chair Saxby, I can just jump in. Um, Alan Tai, city planner. Uh, I'm here with Heather Coleman, planning consultant, as well as Henry Dong, our senior planner. Um, and this is your third workshop on the housing element update. Um, at the last meeting, you had uh, requested staff um, to bring back uh, the latest version of the housing element, and that was provided to you in your staff in the staff report, um, as well as an opportunity to discuss and review uh, for you to review and comment on the uh, objective design review standards that the planning board has adopted. And so for tonight, I mean, we're ready to um, answer any questions you have about the housing element update again. Um, just a quick note on that. Um, the policy document, the draft housing element policy document was submitted to the State Department of Housing Community Development, May 27th. Um, so they have under the state law 90 days to provide comments back to the city. So while we're waiting for those comments, um, there are a couple of things going on. One is we're working with this board to uh, see if you have any additional comments or questions about it. Um, also tonight, hoping to review the objective standards. We're also going to work through the planning board on um, specifically the proposed zoning amendments that would support the programs that are in the housing element. So that's going to happen in between now and um, hopefully when we get comments back from HCD uh, at the end of August. So um, with that, I mean, I think we're ready to, if you have any questions about the housing element programs, policies, that draft document that was sent to the state, um, I could address those questions. Uh, or um, Heather Coleman here, our consultant, um, get, uh, is ready to also give you a presentation on our past work on the objective standards. Okay. Well, I'll just throw in a quick question here. How does the, the city envision incorporating comments at this point uh, in the game where we've already submitted it to the state and assuming the state's gonna come back with a, to us with a thumbs up, thumbs down kind of review. This, um, if, they, if they give us an approval, for instance, how would we make adjustments to our, our housing element um, without jeopardizing that approval? Yeah, that's a good question. So um, uh, think of it this way, state law sets up almost a two, there's, there's two parts to the review. Uh, cities are required to submit the draft, which the state provides us with comments. We then have to take the draft, their comments, rework the document, get it through our planning board for recommendation, then to the city council. And once it's uh, adopted, then we submit to the state for final certification. So it's almost a two-step process. Um, there's certainly uh, opportunity to make amendments to the draft document between now and I would say the, the end of this calendar year. So they're not giving us they're not giving uh, an us approval. An approval. They're just Correct. they're just reviewing it to to comment on its content. Right. Really just a check to make sure that the city is on the right path to meeting all of the state legal requirements. Okay. Uh, are there other comment or other questions? Board member Sanchez. Uh, so could we um, could we begin by taking a look at the transit map? Uh, 
that you guys provided us in our packet and maybe I've got some questions related to that that maybe we could go through it since I know that was something that we asked of you at our last meeting. Sure, absolutely. Um, Henry, would you have that handy? Do you mind sharing that on the screen? Sure. And while we're pulling that up, uh, Board Member Santos, if um, you can go ahead with your question. There you go. Yeah. Um, so I guess the, the question that I had is, um, so if, as we're looking at the graphic, the, the dark outlines, uh, the black lines indicate the transit, the main transit lines, is that correct? That's correct. Okay. And then the area that is then the outside sort of encircling yellow boundary is indicating the, the areas that would be affected by the transit overlay. Do I have that right? That's correct. The, the, that boundary is uh, delineating the quarter mile walking distance from the black high quality transit corridor, the technical terms of what we call it. Mm -hmm. And so the, the areas, the areas that fall within that boundary, are they then, um, irregardless of their zoning, there, what does the overlay district do? It, it eliminates density uh, maximums. Is that, do I have that right? Yeah, so um, I, I could kind of walk through that. So as of today, uh, the, the concept isn't so much a zoning overlay, but that we are providing some exceptions to uh, certain zoning standards. One is if you are located within a quarter mile of this high quality transit uh, corridor, um, and you are adding housing units to the property, you do not need to meet density limits. Okay. Uh, you are also uh, eligible for uh, some exceptions to uh, open space requirements. Um, and Heather and Henry, you, we, we talked about this today. So uh, there, I'm trying to re recollect what else um, we talked had. About oh. A greater height limit and a slightly greater um, coverage limit than the base district would allow. Yes. And does that pertain only to new construction or does it pertain to both existing and new construction? Uh, it would be existing and new construction. I, uh, technically, the focus would be if you are adding units to the building. So okay. it could be an ex within an existing building, if you could fit several, you could divide it up to sev with, into several units, that would be okay. It could be... Um, so for example, Ellen, if you, if you were looking at a property uh, that was an R1, uh, then... If I have it correct, it would be like four units would be your maximum allowed, right? Under the new, the new laws and guidelines. And then if you were in this transit uh, overlay district, then if you could fit in six units into the, the same building, then that would be allowed or you would be exempted from the four unit max. Is that, is that a good example? Uh Yes, that's that's correct. And the four units that we're referring to is SB nine. So think of it as there's right. one tract, one way of getting that many units. Um, right. You can also do ADUs. 
Um, and then in this case, it would be if you were just adding, taking your main building and you technically could fit three units in there and you can, you can do so um, without the, the current zoning rules preventing you from um, meeting that goal. Okay. And then one last question. Sorry, I don't mean to monopolize. Um, the, so the other question I had is if, if we're talking about, let's say that there were a fairly large uh, residence that was, you know, on the historic study list, right? So the, the density, so it would be uh, capable of taking advantage of, of the increased density, but removing that structure and, you know, demolishing it to replace it with a new building is still something that would not be allowed simply because the structure falls within that transit overlay. Do I have that right? That's correct. The intent of this transit overlay is not not a free pass to say you could demolish existing buildings and build new. You would still be subject. I mean, if subject to the preservation ordinance, then that would require certificate approval. That's a discretionary action that will come before this board. Okay. Okay. So yeah, thank you. I, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say there's there's really nothing that prevents demolition other than a, uh, an application to this board and the approval of this board, which can be overridden by the city council. Um, so the other question, I had a question regarding the same the same the same topic. Um, does this transit overlay district um, provide any exemptions from design review? Is it a ministerial review, or is it, or is it, is it sort of the same design, or it's the same review process that it would have to go through otherwise? It's the same review process. So right. there's going to be an objective design review standard that's applied to this overlay, just the same as it would, regardless. That's correct. And um, in fact, I am, I actually have it on the screen. If I want me to share my screen, um, this was just published today in the packet that's going to the planning board at their June, next meeting, June 13th. So um, you all get to see it for the first time. This is really how, uh, this is today's draft. It's, it's on the city website um, as an exhibit to the um, planning board packet. And so um, we're, it's not an, it's not structured like a zoning overlay, but they're basically waivers from certain standards. And you could see here to encourage, I'll just read it, to encourage and to support and encourage construction of small housing units near high quality transit, proposed housing developments located in residential zoning districts, the R1 through R6, and within one quarter mile of high frequency transit corridors. And we define that as the, you know, frequency, uh, just basically bus service with a 15 minute um, interval service, major transit stops in which all new housing units are 1000 square feet or less. So we're talking about incentivizing small units. They have to be 1000 square feet or less. With an ADU, you can go up to 1200. So here we're really trying to target the small units near transit. And so if you meet that criteria, you are exempt from the density limitations. You are exempt from on-site open space requirements, uh, which are currently in their zoning ordinance, a range of 120 to um, per square feet per unit to in, in, in some cases uh, more than that. Um, and 
if the project is five or fewer units, you're not subject to affordable housing requirements. And then you also get a uh, basically a height bonus up to 40 feet. So this is this is our current proposal as of today. And why was a thousand square feet selected? I you know there's many two bedroom one bath houses that are less than a thousand square feet. Uh, That's not exactly when, small, is what my 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 thought is. You know, we, we think that a thousand square feet is um, a reasonable size, to, you know, that could still house families. Um, and yet the square footage isn't, um, would still keep it at sort of an af affordable um, per square foot price range. I mean, it wasn't exact science, but, you know, that's just from our experience. This is what we're, what we're seeing um, um, as being reasonable on the market. And is there any thought of um, you know, future bus lines that would would actually be a much simpler way of serving the community than in than establishing these these transit overlays? Um, it would it would solve the problem of of walking distance? It would it would mitigate the issue of of the impact on these older neighborhoods that is the potential from this. Uh, this type of policy, um, you know, our we have a we have very nice uh, existing roads that would serve serve that purpose very well. You know, the Clement Street route or Otis or Shoreline. I'm sorry, I missed the first part of your question. Well, just additional bus routes instead of transit overlays. Meaning, if there were additional yeah, so bus we're routes, we're doing we're doing we're creating these housing incentives that are in walking distance from the one bus route that serves Alameda on a regular basis. Whereas, if we had two or three bus routes, we wouldn't need a transit overlay. It would accomplish the same thing without the impact on our community. I think the city can, you know, recommend to AC Transit where we would like to have routes, but. Um, like ultimately they, they decide where, where they would put the routes through the city. Mm -hmm. Has anybody approached AC Transit about such ideas? Yeah, and, and I think we're also talking about um, specifically high frequency transit corridors, major transit stops. Those terms are actually defined in their specific criteria. I could scroll sure. up to that page. Um, and um, my just my understanding is not any bus line would be turned into a high frequency transit. I mean, there, there, there are certain criteria that would have to make sense for the transit provider in order to, for them to provide that level of service. So um, I, think, I think in a small city like Alameda, I, I've, I've heard the argument that, okay, well, then this area, the, the, or, or the number of housing opportunities that could take advantage of this waiver can grow over time if there becomes, you know, more and more higher frequency uh, bus lines in the city. And I, I think, well, while that's, as a city planner, I think that's, that's a good thing overall, but in reality, um, there are just so many factors that go into providing transit service that I, I don't think it's realistic to expect every bus line in the city would eventually turn into a high frequency transit corridor. So 
I'm not sure if that answers the question. Sure. Um, do we have other questions from our board members? I, I can't see everybody on my screen right now. Board member Witt, did you have a question or, or Lao? I, I have a question. Um, so the the transit corridors are are um, are so we're we're basing that on the population of the island in when when the developments are are completed. Um, how how do we how do we how do we how do we know that those numbers are are going to be accurate? So how do we project to make sure that we have them in the right place? Uh, so, so we're 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 creating these housing opportunities based on where the transit is located, right? No. So um, the district, I guess your question pertains to. I just want to make sure I, I, I sort of think about transit. I sort of, sort of think about tr transit that we're going to, we're going to need and, um, and thinking about the amount of people that are going to use the transit and, and just, I want to look at the whole island and make sure that we're 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 including enough. Yeah, so it, that kind of gets at you know, do you have the population to to justify the amount of transit service, right? And then also, uh, which comes first, the the transit to support to attract the higher development, mm -hmm. right? Or yeah. I, Good question. I, I I I don't have a direct answer for that. That's okay. I think it's. I think I need to start going to the to the transit meetings because I always have these questions about that. Thank you. But you know, for example, Line Fifty One A has been the same route for many 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 years. So, mm -hmm. I I uh, we have no reason to believe that that route's going to change um, anytime in the near future. But it might be it might be maxed out by the amount of people that are in that neighborhood. So we might have to add an additional transit corridor to to meet the the the, the population. So that's that's all I'm thinking about. Yeah. Thank you. That's a good point. Yeah, yeah I have a uh, sorry, Evan. Go ahead. I'll I'll take my comment. No, I just have a very quick question. Um, so um, you mentioned about if we are, uh, the house located on that transit um, zone. Can we do like some of you want to add more unit like um, in the backyard or something like that? Currently, do you have any setback requirement? Uh, yes. So it would be a board member allow. It would be uh, the setback requirements that are currently in the base zoning district. So if you are in the R, R2 district, for example, you have a front yard setback of 20 feet, rear yard setback of 20 feet, five feet on both sides. So within the setback area is where you can um, add, add more housing units. But even though we are in the transit, um, that zone, right, we still need to follow the guideline for the setback. Correct, because we have not given waivers to the setback requirements. Okay, thanks. Board Member Sanchez, did you have a follow-up question? Uh, well, I think just to, to follow up on um, on Alan's point about the about sort of the public transportation aspect, and, and maybe to allay Jen's fears. Um, yeah. So in in my experience, we live near Ensenal, and the O uh, and the OAC lines come by near there. 
And in recent years, the frequency and the number of buses that go by that are serving San Francisco, whether it's the direct or the express uh, or, or the one that makes all the stops, um, they've increased the frequency of that as the demand has gone up. Um, the other thing too is I'm not on the, the the bus line that I take to get to my office when I can't ride my bike is is not one of the major transit corridors. The bus comes every 20 minutes and it connects Fruitvale to Oakland Airport. Um, so whether I'm riding it from home to the office or back, it's very frequent. So I think that um, again, right now during COVID, that route is not impacted, and it, there's definitely it's not full but again i have to imagine that if more housing were built along that route that then eventually AZ transit will realize okay we're we need more and it's easy enough to add more buses or frequency um so are there other questions i i, I get the sense that we're sort of we're focusing on this transit corridor issue and and maybe we should uh throw it out to public comment and come back to some of the other issues um, such as the objective design standards instead of trying to do it all and then go to public comment. Um, got some head nods there. So if there are no further questions, maybe we should open it up to public comment concerning the um, transit overlay map and the, the, the concept of transit overlay. Do we have any any speakers raising their hand? We do. We have uh, Betsy Matheson. Okay, Miss Matheson. Hello. Hello. Thank you. Thanks for limiting it to transit corridor at this point. <laughs> um, in program three of the draft housing element, which addresses the commercial transit corridor zoning amendments, which is mostly Park and Webster Street. It says permit multifamily housing by right. It shall not require discretionary review or approval. Um, same thing for the residential district zoning amendments, which is program four. Development by right with no discretionary review or approval. So I don't understand how that allows any protection from the historic preservation ordinance if there's no discretionary review or approval. Um, <laughs> I appreciate the discussion the board just had, starting with Mr. Saxby pointing out that um, the current location, uh, current proposed location of the transit overlay will cause an impact on our historic neighborhoods. And this would be a permanent impact, even as more people move to Alameda or move out of cramped houses and into their own affordable dwelling units, more people will be looking for bus service. And as Mr. Sanchez pointed out, uh, AC Transit is likely to accommodate them with new bus lines, but the impact on the existing historic neighborhoods will still be there if we're losing buildings because no discretionary review or approval is required. In fact, the existing bus lines are an artifact of measure A. Bus service is infrequent in R1 neighborhoods because not many people live there. 
And that should change as fair housing is affirmatively furthered throughout the city. The proposed transit overlay reinforces the inequities of Measure A. If there's no bus service in the R1 neighborhoods going forward, low-income residents will be at a disadvantage. So I'm, I'm really glad you're considering this transit overlay effect, even though on the face of it, transit is not uh, the Historic Advisory Board's mission, but it definitely has an impact on historic neighborhoods. And I also liked Ms. Witt's comments about it. And I have a few other comments that fit into my two minutes and 10 seconds that don't apply to the transit overlay. Should I keep going? Uh, well, we're gonna come back to some of these other issues. So okay. I, I prefer if you could hold those uh, comments. Great, thanks for your work. Thank you. Are there other uh, speakers wanting to comment on the transit overlay? There are no more public speakers. Okay. Oh, Frank. actually, we just did have uh, Christopher Buckley raise Okay. Mr. Buckley? Christopher Buckley, um, I was coming prepared to address primarily the objective design review standards. So um, am I understanding correctly that I will have a full five minutes to do that with a, maybe a quick comment here on the transit overlay? Yeah, I'm, I'm just breaking it up so that it's a little more coherent for everyone to understand the, the issues. Okay, that, that, that's a good setup. So thank you for doing that. Um, I just saw the proposed language like the rest of you a few minutes ago, so still trying to digest it, but it looks like that the mapping of the overlay is totally dependent upon where a high quality transit route appears or disappears. And so for example, if another high quality transit route shows up, say on Clement Avenue, the way the language reads, it sounds like there will automatically be an upzoning within that quarter mile with no further discussion. It's baked in. And that seems rather reckless where it's opening up uh, a lot of uncertainty. It's not really planning. And um, as you may know, the Alameda Architectural Preservation Society has had strong reservations about the transit overlay. The previous speaker addressed a lot of those, but this opens up yet another can of worms, if I'm understanding the language correctly. If you're gonna have a transit overlay, it should really be mapped. It should be as shown on the zoning map. If the routes change, hopefully they won't. We do think it is unwise to link zoning to something relatively ephemeral like a bus route. Uh, but if the routes change, uh, that needs to be looked at uh, and reviewed, not something that happens automatically. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Buckley. Uh, any other speakers show up? Uh, there are no more speakers. Okay, great. I'll uh, bring it back to the board and we'll focus on this transit overlay issue uh, and then we'll move on to some of the other housing element questions. Uh, do we have anybody that wants to comment on this? Um, well, I'll, I'll start <laughs> and then maybe you guys can join me. Um, I, I'm, I'm personally, uh, I, I'm not in favor of the transit overlay. 
I think it's it's kind of a blunt force tool that has a, a wide ranging impact on the communities, the very established neighborhoods of Alameda, um, exempting buildings up to what, 40 feet in one and two story neighborhoods, primarily one and two story neighborhoods. Um, the whole issue of the design review, uh, the issues of density. Um, I think these are all things that are going to be negative impacts on our, our existing neighborhoods. And I really, if we're going to do a transit overlay type concept, I would like to see us do it in a much more targeted way um, as if, you know, to see if it works and how it works in very limited areas, you know, that maybe are currently zoned R6 or R5. Um, and, and then if it is working and, you know, the new developments are compatible, then look at expanding it. But just to start out with this um, very drastic overlay that encompasses a good half of our um, Alameda neighborhoods, I think is a mistake. Um, so that's, I'll, I'll pass it on to, to other board members for comment. Board member Sanchez. Um, yeah, I guess maybe uh, I could ask Alan to address the point that Mr. Buckley raised with regards to if um, if Clement were, in his example, if Clement were then to be deemed a, you know, a, tr a transit corridor, then would the zoning uh, overlay sort of follow along as he as he suggested. Yeah, and I, I would like to just bring that language back up on the screen. There, there, there's some clarifications that I would want to make. What you see on the screen is is all we're talking about. Again, it's it's currently set up where if you meet the criteria, we're talking about thousand square foot units that are thousand square feet or less, and you are within the R districts and within a quarter mile of these transit height frequent transit, high frequency transit corridors, then you are eligible for these exemptions. We don't say you're exempt from design review. If you're building an addition with two-story addition to the back of the house in order to add these units, you're going to be subject to design review, okay? Um, if you are building a, if, if you are building a, uh, take the example of demolition, if your addition require or qualifies under the definition of a demolition today, that project would be subject to historical advisory board review for demolition. There's nothing in these rules that would exempt you or, or give you umbrella coverage, if you will, for uh, getting exceptions for other laws that apply, including our preservation ordinance. So I just want to make those things very clear. Design review, certificate approval, those laws still apply. Now, if you're, you're able to, if you're able to create a unit in the basement with no exterior changes, doesn't trigger design review, well, then you get also the benefit of these exemptions. So that's how we are looking at it. But remember, Sanchez, to answer your question, yes. I mean, if the conditions, if, if your housing project if there is a new high frequency high frequency transit corridor on Clement 
and you're within a quarter mile of that, then your project, if it meets the, this criteria, would, would then be eligible. So, so, maybe to so maybe to clarify, the, the by right portion of what's written in the, um, in the housing element, by right is really indicating that your zoning, uh, you know, you're not precluded from uh, applying for that type of development um, based on zoning. Is that, we, yeah. Am I saying that right? When we say by right, within the zoning context, what we refer to is the use. The question about whether you could use this property for residential use, right? By right means there's no question, it is allowed. You do not have to apply for a city permit for us to say whether you can have a residential unit. However, so that residential unit might be subject to design review. If yeah. you're demolishing a historic building for the residential unit, well, then that triggers the uh, certificate of approval. Okay. So, so it's not subject to a conditional use permit, correct. which is, but it still has to meet design review guidelines and yes. et cetera. Okay. Yes. Thank you. Our design review ordinance is still there. Now I, I would have to um, clarify that there are some types of housing projects under state law in the state of California, for example, supportive and transitional housing. Those are by right and subject to ministerial review, meaning there will be no public notice. Now, in, but if that supportive housing project involves demolishing a historic building, well, then they have to address that portion of the law first. Okay, thank you. Other comments? I'm not seeing anybody raise their hand. So um so moving on from uh actually tom can i uh, sure i do have one more um one more comment just uh, circling back to sort of the issue of of you know the longevity of the transit lines right i mean i i think that um you know from a very personal standpoint my wife grew up here in alameda and 30 years ago she was taking the 51 to to go to school at berkeley and and that has not changed in that time. So I, I do think that while it is true that um, transit is not limited by infrastructure in terms of, you know, it doesn't run on rails. And so it could easily be moved from one street to the other. Um, I don't think it, AC Transit, you know, sort of willy nilly chooses to run in different places. I think if anything, they add service as the need arises. So I think the example of Clement becoming a potential future corridor that is more serviced by transit is, is quite likely. And so I think that that is something that, um, you know, the, the point of the fact that the, um, that those exemptions would probably, would likely in some future date affect areas that are outside of that outline is, is likely. But the fact that the existing high transit corridors are gonna disappear or, or go away i i don't think that's likely um so anyway i just figured i'd throw the my two cents in on that one okay board member lao i saw you raise your hand yeah i just have a uh and another question so you right now the transit corridor is uh, set up like uh, a quarter for the distance can we like make it smaller meaning the distance maybe one eight or something or why you how you decide the one i mean quarter 
Yeah, that actually is a very good question, Board Member Lau. So um, we didn't just make these up. Uh, these definitions are, are selected from various uh, state legislation. So for, for example, ADU law references a quarter mile. I mean, a quarter mile really is a, I would kind of call it a universal standard for what's considered walk, a, a reasonable walking distance. And, um, you know, that's that's been pretty much on the books recognized, you know, a long time that, you know, within a quarter mile, you, you, it, it's very accessible. You can, you can walk to it. Um, and um, the specific definitions, high frequency transit corridors, major, but uh, major transit stops are uh, existing definitions in state law that we've selected. So, um, you know, we, 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 we we wanted to pick an objective standard, no pun intended, but you know, to, to start as the basis. So that's really where, where it's come from. The, another very important point too is um, it's our understanding that a lot of um, grant applications, grant funds for affordable housing are tied to these specific definitions it's because a lot of federal funding is trying to encourage um, housing opportunity play the, the use of transit services. So, and, and that synergy. And so um, we recognize that this is really this, the same type of incentive that we want to provide here in, here in the city in our zoning. Thank you. Okay, are there other comments? If there are no other comments, I think we should, we should try to move on then to the uh, objective design standards unless there's some other uh, housing element item that somebody wants to bring up. I know um, the, the upzoning housing density issue is, is also potentially something discussed tonight. So let's, let's go with the, uh, the objective design standards while we, while we can. So is there, any, is there gonna be any kind of presentation on that particular issue or yeah. um, we're just gonna discuss it? Heather has a yeah. uh, presentation for the Okay, board. great. Just yeah. some background. Heather, thank you. And I think, um, is Henry going to uh, be in charge of the slides, or do you want me to share screen? I can share the screen. I'll just have a little issue figuring out this. Okay, great. All right. Um, good evening, board members. My name is Heather Coleman. I'm a planning consultant. And um, I just want to give you an overview of the objective design review standards that we prepared for multifamily and mixed-use housing, as well as for one and two family dwellings. Um, next slide, please. So um, the larger context for this is that more and more state laws are um, limiting cities' review of the design of housing projects to review against objective standards. And I'm not gonna go into the details of these, but I just um, listed a few of them here, uh, a few of the laws um, that are calling for review against objective standards. And those include SB 35, AB 2162, and SB 9. Next slide, please. So the state 
Uh, state law defines objective standards as those that involve no personal or subjective judgment by a public official and are uniformly verifiable by reference to an external and uniform benchmark or criterion available and knowable by both a development applicant and the public official prior to submittal. Um, something worth mentioning here is that um, there is a set of guidelines for SB 35, and they do say you can include architectural style um, as an objective standard, as long as you identify and define what that is. And they give an example, I think of, for example, if you defined, you know, a certain porch, porch columns as part of um, a craftsman style. So you can include architectural style as long as you identify and define the elements that make up that style. Next slide, please. Um, so some of the principles that we were using when we prepared the guidelines were to draw on existing design manuals. Alameda has several and um, pull out guidelines that were already objective. For example, um, the citywide design review manual has a standard or, or a guideline that says that the ground floor of mixed use buildings or commercial buildings actually shall be at least 14 feet in height that's pretty straightforward and objective. There were also guidelines that could be easily translated into objective standards. Um, and then we really wanted to balance certainty or specificity with flexibility. Um, so we wanted to be as clear as possible, but we also didn't want to be too prescriptive. So um, we've, uh, I'll, I'll show you later an example of a menu of options. We wanted to give developers multiple ways to achieve the same principle. Um, and we also just really want to acknowledge that standards are not a recipe for good design. Um, they do not guarantee good design, um, but they can be used to pre prevent some of the worst site design and building design situations. So that's really where we're coming from, is just try to hit the big stuff. Um, next slide, please. So this is, these are just some examples um, from, from Oakland, um, where I live, uh, where uh, the frontage of a, a property is very dominated by parking. And you can see like the one on the right, you don't even know where the, the front door is. The whole front of the lot is just occupied by by parking spaces. So that's an example of something that we can easily avoid by writing a standard that says your parking needs to be in the back or to the side. Next slide. Um, I mentioned existing design review manuals. Just, you know, we didn't want to reinvent the wheel. We just wanted to draw from um, existing manuals like the Guide to Residential Design, a citywide design review manual, um, pull and pull out the, the, the guidelines and, that are, this is existing practice. Um, so we're not, we're not coming up with something brand new. Next slide. Um, so just to give you a little bit of a timeline, um, a set of multifamily standards we adopted in February of 2020, and then we adopted a revised, or the planning board adopted a revised set in 2021. Um, in anticipation of SB9 going into effect uh, in January of 22, 
of 2022. Um, we brought a set of one and two family dwelling standards in December of 2021. And um, the state requires that these this objective standards be adopted, um, but they're not they're not part of the the um, AMC, so they didn't need to go to the city council, and um, they can be maintained by staff. We can make clarifications and add graphics, but more substantial changes need to go to the planning board. And um, I know that you know I know we're aware that they're already adopted, but there is. Um, but we still would like your comments on them. And Ellen might have more to say about that um, too. Yeah, may, may I just say a couple Please. of words on that? So um, the planning board grappled with kind of with, with same issues that were raised in the all of the public correspondence this board has received tonight. Um, very same issues about the transit um, uh, design, uh, the, the traditional design area. Um, and the planning board I would say left the door open to revisit these standards in the future, but mainly the direction for staff was, you know what, we have, we've arrived at a decent set of standards. Let's try to apply it first. I mean, so far I would say that for the multifamily uh, standards, we've applied it to one project, which is a North housing project undertaken by the housing authority. Um, and we want to be able to build some experience before we restudy the issue. But so certainly the board's comments tonight, we will, we were, we're taking notes. Um, and the next time we are revisiting these standards, we will, we will um, transmit your comments to the, to the planning board. Thank right. you. Thank you. Um, yeah. Next slide, please. Um, so we're just going to give you an overview of the content of the standards tonight. Um, in, the, in your staff report, there was a link to them. Um, they are pretty detailed, um, but uh, we just wanted to give you the big picture tonight. So the uh, multifamily and mixed-use standards address these topics, parking location and access, landscaping, the design of children's play areas, building mass and articulation, building orientation and entries, exterior materials, window recess and details, equipment screening, there's standards for mixed use development, um, and then there are some standards related to neighborhood context. And I guess, you know, if you have, if you had a chance to look at the standards and you have specific questions, we can go into those areas, but we just wanted to give you the overview. So um, next slide. Um, so I wanted to talk about an example of a menu of options, which we used in the standards. So this has to do with building articulation um, to avoid blank facades and create visual interest. So um, we asked developers to um, include at least two of a long list of features. And these are just some of them. They could choose to offset at least 25% of the area of a facade, at least two feet. They could um, do a projection or recess um, every of a certain depth every 50 feet. They can include a vertical feature that runs the whole um, height of the building for every 50 feet, and it had to be a certain width and, and projection. 
they could recess windows um, more deeply than what we normally require, um, recess them at least four inches. They could include horizontal design features, such in, in such as water tables, belt courses, and then at the top of the building cornice. So it just I just want to give you an example of how, you know, there's there is no way to create you know or guarantee a good design, but we would you know if a developer does at least two of these, we won't have a completely blank facade. Next slide. So we just wanted to give you some visual examples. Um, these are the first. The one on the left is in Oakland, and it's um, there's not a lot of transparency, and there's not a, not much articulation at all. Um, the second one is at Telegraph and Ashley, Ashby and Berkeley, and it's a new building. We think that it has um, a lot of a lot of uh, articulation and interest, and they use different materials. They they jog the wall in and out. They use different colors. They differentiate the um, the ground floor from the upper floors and they and the top floor from the floors below it. Next slide. Um, we employed something that we're calling the traditional design area. These are neighborhoods of Alameda that have uh, pre-1942 buildings. And we use this concept both um, in the standards for mixed use development and for the neighborhood context standards. Next slide. So um, based on input from the community, we included a set of standards that we call the neighborhood context standards. And um, it's uh, part of that is looking, so these, these slides just show whether you're on, you know, if you're on an interior lot, how you determine what your context area is and if you're on a corner lot, how you determine what your context area is. So you go five lots or 250 feet out, whichever is greatest, and you pick a reference building from that area. And then you, um, you, you, your design of your project has to incorporate certain features of your reference building or buildings. So next slide. So these are the topics that the um, neighborhood context standards address, roof form pitch, eaves, exterior materials, windows, and architectural details. Next slide. Um, and then, as I mentioned, in December 2021, the, plan the planning board adopted a set of standards for one and two family dwellings in anticipation of SB9, which is the law that um, allows duplex development in single family districts and, um, and requires that it is only subject to uh, objective standards. So we address parking in garages, parking needs to be located behind or to the side of buildings. Any garage doors that face the street need to be limited in width. Um, the front door needs to face the street and you need to provide a, a porch of a minimum area. Uh, you need to include some kind of openings like windows and they need to have um, trim or recess. Next slide. And then we also included some standards. So the last the last slide had to do with all all one and two family projects that that invoke ministerial review under a state law. That's important to emphasize. Um, and um, so the last the last set had to do with it. It's for all projects, new development as well as additions. And then we also took 
from our existing guidelines, standards for additions. Um, so you can, your project can't obscure or destroy original architectural features. It must maintain the roof form of the existing building. It must maintain similar proportions to existing windows. Um, that you must match the siding. And um, there's some upper story additions uh, must match the, the style of the existing building. Uh, we drew on the guide to residential design and incorporated the, the standard for pop-up additions to bungalows to be rotated. It's, it's one that staff has um, utilized again and again from the guide to the residential design. And then the guide to residential design also has a proportional requirement if you raise a building. So we included that as an objective standard as well. Next slide. And with that, I'm gonna pass it to Alan. I think he has a, a few more comments. Yeah, so um, I, I just wanted to um, bring back this slide, which was prepared by AAPS at previous meetings. And it kind of showed a gray blob at the end. And, and really, I, I think it was important for staff to just clarify what we really envision are you know buildings that are developed under these objective standards. It could have really well articulation, I mean, it's, it would be a tall building, but we've also seen and the Odd Fellows building a block from City Hall is about 60 feet. So, you know, this is just to show you that an example of what staff's vision is. Um, and if we could go to the next slide, I also want to show an example of what staff have been talking about for particularly Park Street and Webster Streets with ground floor commercial uh, with four levels of uh, residential development above with the top floor being stepped back. And so um, this is actually a rendering of a real project in, in another city. Um, and this is along the lines of what staff had, had in mind in terms of what, what that step back, upper story step back might look like with a five-story, 60-foot um, tall building. So that's all I wanted to share with these images. Thank you. Was there any more, Heather? That was. No, I didn't have any more. Um, the next is just, yeah, to, to throw it up open for questions. Okay. Um, well, I'll, just, I'll start off with a question. So just clarify for me, please, you know, what projects fall under the objective design review standards? Is it all new buildings? Is it alterations or in additions to new building or existing buildings? I mean, is it everything or is it limited to certain projects? So it's basically any project so, that- um, Yeah, I can answer that. Uh, okay, go ahead. Sorry, my, I think my internet is stuttering. So I, I yeah, missed some of the-, the my, my question, if you didn't hear it, was just what, what uh, projects fall under the objective design review standards? What types of projects? And I heard Heather. Uh... Oh, yeah, maybe we can both chime in. Sure, I yeah, go ahead. I started to say that um, it's any project that state law requires um, ministerial review against objective standards. So for example, SB 35, it's projects that have a certain um, affordable housing component 
and and there there's a whole list of eligibility criteria, and then they invoke um, SB 35. Um, and then there there's a couple other state laws that are, would apply to the uh, that the um, the multifamily um, standards would apply to, and um, and then the single and two family standards are really were written in anticipation of SB nine. So at the moment, it's really there. We're not using these in in place of design review. It's just when when state law limits the city's review to objective standards, these come into play. Okay, that's very helpful. Right, and and I might also add that um, state law is has been evolving. At the time that we were preparing these standards a year or two ago. Our understanding was this is really for SB 35. Since then, there's been new laws, including amendments to the Permit Streamlining Act, that is that is stating that if there are any new standards that the city is adopting, applying for housing development, that they have to be objective standards. I think it's post January 2021 that they all have to be objective standards. So, so you know, I sense that there, there is going to be an increasing trend at the state level to push cities to apply objective standards for all new residential development. And I, I think that's, that is our anticipation moving forward. But as of today, it's the categories that Heather had um, described. So that's, that sounds like mainly new housing projects and not necessarily applying to um, existing buildings and alterations and additions. Um, I think in a scenario where we would have to apply objective standards, we would we would use this set of standards. But again, just keep in mind that these objective standards have its roots in our design review manual and guide to residential design. That's where we lifted all of the the ideas from, if you will, and then tried to formulate them into um, an, an objective, um, written in an objective format, kind of a checklist format. So it's going to apply to all, all projects, is what you're I, saying. I think that's re it's reasonable to expect that that will be the okay. case moving forward. Uh, Board Member Sanchez, question? Uh, yeah, so I was, as, as I was preparing for tonight's meeting, I went onto the uh, state's website to look up SB9 to just sort of refresh my memory and try to understand it a little better. And there's a con um, it, you know, there's a myth or facts section there that says that it excludes historic districts. And so I wondered if you could comment as to how that would apply. So for example, if there is a historic district like uh, Park Street Business District, for example, um, then maybe that's not a great example since SB9 I think is not applicable for commercial, but if there was a historic district, say, the stations or parts of the Gold Coast or whatever the case may be, um, is it is it exempt? Uh, is that would that be exempt under SB nine from having to go through ministerial review or um, or objective design review? Yeah, so uh, kind of two different things. What SB nine is the law that says in the single R one single family zones you could have up right, to yeah. one unit. So uh, in that case, SB nine says that. If you have an established historic district, then that doesn't apply. Today in Alameda, we we don't have R1 districts that are designated historic districts. So that's okay, not applicable. So, got it. That was my question. So it's not, um, 
it differentiates between a district and a um a and a, it, right and a site that's listed as on our study list for example correct okay thank you other questions board member witt um so these design standards were based on uh previous designs that the the city of alameda had before and also state designs of designs um i'm just i'm just wondering if they also include i mean there's been you know revolutions in design um since you know since those elements came to be i just um i just want to make sure that we are including designs that consider consider livability um and you know that in, in, encourage community like gathering as well in addition to the children's play areas and so that was my question Okay, so yeah, uh, yes. So uh, we had a slide. Heather had a slide that showed the covers of all of our various design review manuals. Alameda has been doing design review for nearly fifty years, so there's a lot of design review, in-house design review experience, um, and and records of of um, design. And so um, we we basically and those design guidelines primarily focused on exterior building design, not so much kind of the uh, living formats or use of the buildings, although, you know, that, that would be input that we would look be looking for um, to add to our objective standards, things that would, you know, maybe, maybe ele living elements that um, might relate to open space. Um, so, so that's an area that um, we, we could also um, use the board's input on. Does that answer the question? Yes, I mean, and I, I want them, I want communities uh, that are developed to feel in, in, inclusive and that and to feel welcoming and and I I think you know sometimes when you go to other countries you realize that that the communities are built in a in a way that encourages gathering and 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 communicate communication with one another and I just want to make sure that we do that when we when we develop these projects. Yes, and board member, what I think um, our current standards today. I mean, little things like common sense things like requiring the front entrance and front porches to be facing the street or, or some of the things that we are doing mm -hmm. to reinforce that idea that, yeah, that's your, that's sort of your neighbor interface um, is right on the front facing the street. Don't put your front door, front porch on the side. So that's one example. Great, thank you. Board Member Sanchez, another question? Uh, yeah, so I'm not sure if this is one for Ms. Coleman. So one question I had with regards to Sort of the the menu items list of contextual elements that that you would be looking for applicants to select from so how literal is that to be taken so if we use sort of the example of like a queen anne victorian and you know some of the uh maybe uh corbeling or freezes so is the intent that you would be asking well you would want to have if the contextual building that you're using as your reference has corbels it's not that you want them to match the corbels exactly but the fact that you would incorporate corbels is that am i saying that right um i it's i have to admit it's been a little while since i worked on these but what i recall is that it's um we really break down the um, the context standards into different topics, like roof roof forms, 
window orientation, presence of ease, and then um, there is a section on architectural details. But the, the architectural style comes into play when you're selecting which building is gonna be your reference building. And we, um, so for example, if within your context area, 40% or more of the buildings in your, in your context area are craftsmen, then one of your options is to, to, pick, to pick those as your, um, as your reference building. And so, you know, we want, you know, we don't want like, you know, it to, to look too kitschy, but you might have substantial porch columns, um, front porch. Um, I don't know if Alan and Henry want to add to that. Can I ask a question clarifying that? Just so you have a neighborhood of 40% craftsman homes and you have an outlying building that's uh, a plaster building in the 19, from the 1960s. And the, the applicant says, well, that is my reference building. The, the plaster building with the aluminum windows, maybe that's an exaggeration. But my point is, they, what's preventing them from picking sort of the worst example on the block? So they have some options. They can pick. They have, it, these are, first of all, they need to pick 1942 or pre-1942 buildings. Okay, good. Pick. Within that context area, which is the five houses on each side are 250 feet, they can pick an N or S designated property. They can um, pick it, the, the architectural style that predominates. They can um, use the buildings on either side, or they can do an inventory of um, of features, which is more work, but it's something that you know we got. Uh, input from the community, they wanted to include that. Um, so, yeah, so they, it's unlikely they'd be picking the, the worst building on the block. Okay, so there are some parameters. Yes. yes. And I was just going to share that page with everyone on the screen. So the section is devoted to exactly everything. Um, um, Heather Coleman described it here. So these are the parameters on how do you select the reference building? And what, what are some things that you would pay attention to? Now, um, I think to answer Board Member Sanchez's question about how, how prescriptive the standards are in terms of matching a detail, uh, the planning board was very clear about not wanting to be too prescriptive where we, where we um, limit um, a architect or designer's ability do, or to have that flexibility to to come up with a good design. So we're not we're not saying that you have to match exact you know detail that appears on an existing building, but that you would if if using a craftsman example, if there were brackets, then you would do brackets. But there'd be some uh, flexibility on how how the um, bracket yeah, can can be can appear. And what about um, in reference to these uh, context buildings, uh, alterations to buildings that were pre-1942, how are they addressed? So if there was so an alter- If, there, if there's a if stucco covered Queen Anne. Right. And yeah, we address that in the standards too. And I believe uh, the standards say if, if 
that was the only example and it's already been altered, then you would follow the same style. So if it was Queen Anne style, you would ignore yeah. the stucco, but go with it's what would typically be uh, the exterior of that. It's original Anne condition. Building. Correct. Yeah. Okay. And I'm just looking at it. It's on page oh, 19, uh, Alan, yes. the very next page. I remember uh, altered buildings right here. Yeah. Okay. There, it was just, there's a lot of material here, so it's hard to yes. get through. But that's understanding a all of this. Mm -hmm. So I'm just jumping in with another question. I can't see everybody's hands raised. So, because uh, the screen is is this uh, document. Um, so is there any is there any chance for uh, appeal of decisions made based on objective review design standards? Uh, so, so I could talk about that, and um, I think. The objective standards were created to support ministerial review. So ministerial under state law means there's no judgment, there's no appeals process, there's no public notification. So, so it's 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 almost a checklist. It's intended. The requirements are intended to be black and white. You either meet it or you don't. Um, so there there is no appeal. But um, what we've built in the standards is an option where if a developer applicant chooses you know not to meet the standard they can select the discretionary option um, and you know there, there's state laws that that on some projects like supportive and transitional housing mandate a ministerial review so that's not an option but in other cases you know uh, the developer can opt out of ministerial review and go through a planning board design review hearing to say, you know what, the standard doesn't work for me. I would like your discretionary approval. So, so that is an option that we've built into our standards. Yeah, I would, I, you know, if, if this is going to apply to more and more projects uh, moving forward, um, it would be nice to know that there's some kind of public involvement um, in the design review process, or at least a chance for it. Right. If if it's not barred by state law, right, then right. certainly our the city's default design review process will apply, and that process does have public notification and um, appeal rights. But if state okay. law says no, this is this type of use, residential use, is only ministerial, then that would not be an option. Board Member Sanchez. So, uh, as an example, Ellen, if if somebody wanted to do a more contemporary building than what the standard, than what the prescriptive uh, allows, then they could then ask to go for design review and that would still allow them the possibility of pursuing something that isn't based on a pre-1942 building if they so chose, right? That's absolutely correct, yes. Thank you. Other questions? If not, then um, I think I'm going to open this up for public comment on the objective design review standards. Uh, I think we probably have some speakers on that particular subject. Don't have any public speakers at this time. Interesting. Um, That'll change. But that it just changed. We have. To <laughs> Okay, Mr. Buckley. Hey, Christopher Buckley with the Alameda Architectural Preservation Society. Can we start the screen share? Uh, I'd first like, we'd first like to thank staff and the planning board 
for developing what we think overall are very good sets of standards and especially thank Heather Coleman and Alan Ty for their role in that. I, we sent you a lot of material. I'm going to try to go over some of the items that we think are the most important. The first concerns the traditional design area, which we think is a very good approach to protect the older areas of the city while allowing a much wider range of design options outside the traditional design area or the TDA. We were puzzled though that a very historic area that is the North Park Street residential areas were not included in the TDA. This, these have some of the oldest buildings in Alameda. It's very intact. Uh, we sent you the Judith Lynch report that uh, goes into considerable detail on the history. Uh, this is an image of one of those. And so we would ask the planning board to, pardon me, the HAB to urge the planning board to include the North Park Street residential areas, which means the residential subdistrict, the mixed use subdistrict, to some degree the workplace subdistrict, and a couple of blocks on Park Street itself on the west, pardon me, the east side between Lincoln and Buena Vista that includes McGee's, which you saw on the previous slide. Uh, the second major comment. And can we go to the um, next screen share? There was a second image. All right, well, I'll keep talking while we see if that image comes up. Um, related to the comment I just made, the TDA, the approach of looking at within the nearest 250 feet might not work too well in the commercial areas because things are a lot spread out and you're more likely to have non-contributing buildings you know, close by. So we're uh, suggesting that different options we look at. Staff tells us that on Park Street, staff is already doing that. Uh, one approach might be to identify certain thematic buildings within the entire uh, commercial district and use those, allow the applicants to pick from those what they might want to use as models. Uh, third comment, which is what this image refers to, is um, windows, which is very important to maintain the look of a, uh, of a neighborhood context. We're recommending that the dimensions in this diagram, the typical dimensions of wood and metal windows, be incorporated into the standards uh, so that a wood-like window, doesn't have to be wood, but could be other materials, but it still has the look is referred to for new construction. These diagrams, these dimensions have been used for about 20 years in the city. They seem to have worked well. Many architects simply take these images and cut and paste them into their plans and saying, this is what the windows are gonna look like. So we think this would be fairly simple. Uh, and we urge the, the HAB to uh, ask the planning board to include those. Uh, moving on, the... Uh, you know, Heather Coleman mentioned the uh, reference building uh, selection approach. And uh, we think those options are, are generally good. We are concerned though about the adjacent buildings approach because you could have outliers as adjacent buildings. And we are suggesting maybe that be deleted or at least limited, but use the other options. Uh, continuing on the details discussion, which uh, you had, the way it's set up, the applicant can pick um, two details, but the list of details includes some that are very important, others that aren't very important. So for example, among more important details, things like porch columns of the same style and proportion of those of the reference buildings, um, window and corner trim, um, 
cornices, and we're suggesting and or entablatures. Those are important. Uh, less important ones are things like trellis awnings, bay windows, scalloped or other curved parapets. Uh, so we're suggesting we, in our markups, we identified specific criteria that we're recommending be always applied. The others could be optional. Uh, another, I'm gonna shift to the one and two unit uh, standards. We think those are very good also, but um, we're recommending that they be expanded to have the context provisions of multifamily standards because you could have new construction at the front of a lot for an SB9 project. And that new construction should conform with the context if it's within the traditional design area. It may be unlikely, but we do have those situations also on the street side of a corner lot since the uh, new building will be visible from the street. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Buckley. Do we have any other speakers? We do not have any other public speakers at this time. Okay. Bringing it back to the board for comments. Would anybody like to start? Board member Sanchez. Uh, so I have a question. The, so could uh, could staff or Ms. Coleman uh, address what the what the ramifications are of falling outside of the TDA? Um, uh, we quite a bit of the correspondence that we received was in support of Mr. Buckley's point of uh, includes including the areas that they're mentioning, the North Park um, Street area and the TDA. And I was just curious what the is the ramification that if you're if you're outside of the TDA, then you um, you have a different uh, standard that you need to meet with regards to design review. That was that was my question. Sure. So the the TDA is used for two things within the multifamily um, set of standards. Um, one thing has to do with the uh, the mixed use standards for mixed use buildings. Um, so there's a set of standards for mixed-use buildings that apply citywide, and they have to do with ground floor transparency, um, uh, some vertical articulation, and minimum ground floor height. So those apply everywhere. And then in, within the TDA, if you have a mixed-use building, it gets a little more specific, and that's where we were drawing on some standard, some guidelines slash standards from the Webster Design Review Manual. So. So we're getting into nitty gritty things like bulkhead materials and bulkhead height, um, transparency of doors and windows. And we thought that might be a bit much for the whole city, but we also heard that, they, that um, the community really wanted uh, some of those details from the Webster Street Design Manual. So, so that's where the traditional design area um, matters for mixed use buildings. And then for um, the neighborhood context standards, which are a whole set of standards in, unto themselves, if you're outside of the TDA, the neighborhood context standards don't apply. Um, and the reason for that is just to make things simpler for, for applicants. So they don't have to go through this whole exercise of identifying all, the, all of the surrounding buildings if they're in an area that doesn't have pre-1942 buildings. Um, so they're just, and and as I think Ellen mentioned earlier, it would allow them to, um, to uh, use more contemporary designs. So my, so I, 
so that's how it impacts um, for the neighborhood context standards. Does that answer your question? Uh, it does, thank you. Do we have other questions or comments? Okay. Um, well, I think just for the reasons expressed in that answer, I think it's important to include the, the North Park Street wedge neighborhood in the TDA, um, given that it's such an historic neighborhood, um, it really needs to address, or the new development in that neighborhood needs to fall under the TDA uh, requirements. Um, I'd hope that other board members would agree with that as well as the um, uh, the park west, I think it's west side of Park Street between Lincoln and Buena Vista. That block with a couple of very historic buildings um, should be included in that uh, discussion as well. Um, there was a lot of stuff going through my mind as we were going through these topics. Now I have to look back at my notes. Um, I'm a little bit, oh, I, another, TD, another uh, TDA question uh, regarding Webster Street. Um, I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I don't, don't have a copy of the TDA map in front of me, but I think wasn't the Webster Street WABA Business Association, weren't they asking to extend the TDA further uh, north on Webster Street? to include additional areas up to Atlantic Avenue. That's what I thought I read in one of the correspondences that came through. And right now it, it looks like yeah. it stops at Pacific Pacific Avenue. Yes. Sure, Saxby, and, I, I can I can respond to that when, when you're done with your question. Don't mean well, I, I think it's it's just that, you know, I, I think they're really trying to create sort of a you know, there's no historic reference buildings in that upper Webster Street area, but they're choosing to, ex they would like to include the, the TDA in that zone to encourage more traditional style development to kind of create a cohesive district. And so um, what's the objection, objection to something like that? So, um Maybe we could zoom in a little bit. I, I think that is a very good question, especially in the context of uh, the discussion we had at the last workshop with the HAB about Webster Street and building heights. Um, I think what staff is currently proposing on Webster Street, we, we've had this idea that the historic core of Webster Street was really between Lincoln and Central Avenue. And, and I would agree. If you agree, then maybe that is the area that we would uh, include in the TA, uh, TDA. In the zoning, perhaps you you would want to keep lower height limits, but that north of Lincoln, you would you would allow the height limit to increase, where you would see new development at greater intensities. And in this case. If you look at the map, the idea is everything north of Pacific. Those sites are currently what the the uh, uh, some there's some fast food sites. Um, Pete's the Coffee. Pete's Coffee site. 
right? garage and, <laughs> and just a lot of park open parking lot and maybe those areas could be redeveloped with more contemporary design so i think that was what went into um uh the thinking in this td tda diagram and i would recollect that the planning board at the meeting also saw this map and they understood um the desire to try to integrate new design with the neighborhood and and have it replicate a lot of the design elements but the planning board was also very careful about not um shutting down kind of the opportunities for some really good contemporary design and they looked at this map and when you look at this diagram here it basically covers nearly all of the traditional R districts so they were very concerned about one having that balance and then two hey let's apply the standards see what we get we could always come back and modify the design standards modify the the, the boundaries so that was something that the the planning board wanted to do and so again they did not shut the door on the standards they are very open to revisiting them but they wanted to have a second look at it once staff has had some experience applying the standards. I would say so far, we haven't had a project that we, where we've had to apply the neighborhood context yet. And it's been almost two years. So um, that, that, that was a discussion from the planning board and the rationale behind, behind the TDA boundaries. Okay, well, I just, you know, it seems like with the West Alameda Business Association re requesting sort of a stylistic preference um, it, it, it kind of, to me, that has some significance in that they're, um, you know, trying to create desirable business neighborhood and um, to the benefit of the city and the city saying, well, no, we want to kind of do our own thing. Um, So many, so many thoughts here. Oh, one sort of general comment is I, I think that the objective design standards would really, really benefit by more graphics, pictures, drawings. Um, there's also, I mean, there's, it's, it's a lot of words, but really when you start looking at images, it, it all comes together uh, and it makes it much clearer for people using the standards. And I would encourage it like the, the residential design view manual that um, has very good diagrams. Um, I would encourage more of that, and I think that would be helpful. Um, I think, as Mr. Buckley pointed out, under the architectural details category, I really, I do think, instead of the, the option of picking two details, which I, I think can create some very bizarre architecture, um, there really should be mandatory details or features under the stylistic heading of each particular context building type. Um, otherwise, I, I, just, I just can't see a good result happening from picking two random uh, features from, from buildings in the context area. I think there really needs to have, there needs to be a set of mandatory features. And then on top of that, maybe two features uh, that are, that are um, optional. Um, the, 
I mean, <laughs> I feel like there's so many more comments to be made. Um, and I, you know, I think that the the context area and context buildings, you know, really should look at, you know, dominant architectural styles in the area. Um, and you know, I, th I think maybe that was addressed, but I'm not really sure how carefully uh, it was addressed. And then, you know, just read this is this is going through the one and two family standards. There were things in it that I thought were almost too prescriptive. Um, for instance, under architectural details and materials, trim, window and corner trim shall be no smaller than one by four. However, if a proposed project has stucco siding, stucco mold window trim, two inches, three inches wide may be used. I think that's fine, but lots of shingle buildings also have stucco mold or brick mold trim around the windows. And so why would you limit it to stucco buildings? Um, you should include shingle buildings. In fact, many or probably most shingle buildings have it. Um, the, uh, I think some other things that I thought were maybe too prescriptive or maybe I think some of these questions, I think the, stu the stucco mold or the shingle uh, option is occurs in a couple different places. And then, I think, you know, there's, there's talk of, and there's upper story additions where it talks about window alignment. I think that exceptions can be made to that, um, especially if there's a roof separating the two floors um, or some kind of element that would sort of disconnect the alignment between the, the, the uh, upper story addition. Um, I'm not sure we want to encourage a change of materials between the upper, an upper floor addition and the lower floor addition. I mean, that, Maybe it would be appropriate in some cases, but I don't think it's necessarily appropriate in all cases. Um, I, I think there could be a lot of a lot more comments along those lines. Um, and then, sort of one other thing that jumped out at me was under standards for raising a building. It refers to street-facing stairs maximizing rise over run as allowed under the California Building Code. Um, if we're referring to one and two story residential or one and two family residential units, it's the California residential that's code, not the California building code. And that actually gives you a higher uh, rise to run ratio than the California building code. So it worked more towards what's being intended here is to prevent the um, elongated staircase. So that's just a correction. Um, so I, I would love to, you know, spend a lot more time going over these, and I wish we had a chance to do this, uh, you know, prior to them being approved by the planning board. But um, those are just some initial thoughts, and I'm, I'm dominating the conversation here. So please jump in, other board members.
Governor Sanchez. Um, so I was going to ask if we could, like we did on Webster Street, if we could go back to the wedge to the map and and show the TDA section of the wedge area that was um, that received all the comments, um, just to sort of understand whether you know a minor extension in that area might alleviate some of the concerns um, of people in that neighborhood, and then because it seems to me that if we have if we extend the TDA slightly to cover some of these areas that are of greater concern, then there's still the option for somebody to um, to apply for a, a project and go through regular design review rather than through the prescriptive method um, to to select something other than the um, than the contextual. Is, is that do I have that right? Uh, Alan, that somebody could still apply for design review if they were trying to avoid the prescriptive. So are you able to just kind of point to us on the map, sort of that area that, that we're talking about? I, it's sort of uh, perpendicular to the marketplace, I believe, right? Yeah, so so the, the area that is uh, left out of the um, boundaries is really the entirety of the what we call the North Park Street Zoning District. Got it, and okay, so, so that entire yeah. area. And really from staff perspective, yes, there are some really old buildings there, but if you look at that whole geographic area, there's a lot going on. There are a lot of different types of uses and buildings. It's also where the city, uh, does the zoning code currently um, um, supports a lot of intense development, particularly along facing Park Street. So okay. I think, you know, there is merit to looking at this at a, at a finer grain. Um, I would say that's kind of a policy decision that the planning board had considered when, when it last looked at these standards. Um, you know, I think if, uh, you know, the, the, the comments that Chair Saxby provided just, just now, very good comments, exactly the type of input that we would be looking for, what's too prescriptive, what's not, what are some of the corrections. Um, the planning board was very careful about ensuring that we don't have guidelines that become too prescriptive, particularly on items that um, would add costs, particularly things like trim details. Um, the housing authority was at the, at the meeting um, forcing their concern about uh, uh, the city not trying to require too much, uh, too much architectural detailing. That's going to add labor material costs. I mean, the example was, you know, the Everett the Everett Commons project, which is located in this geographic area, was on the cover of the LA Times as one of the most expensive affordable housing projects in the state. Um, and the housing authority attributes it to, you know, just the lower density, the fact that it is, you know, detached buildings, um, and, and a lot of the architectural detailing that, the, you know, it was a great project, but, you know, don't, there's, there's no doubt about that. But from their, pers from a cost perspective, um, they, they would not do that same project again. Um, Right. But so that's what the planning board was considering. And I'm just trying to explain why sure. this, why the planning board kind of agreed to leave this area out for now, but they did not, again, they did not completely shut the door on revisiting it in the future, um, okay. pen, pending yeah. some input on, on how we apply the standards. I guess the, the last point I'll make is that uh, to, to second Chair Saxby's comment about 
you know, how helpful images are. And I think, you know, to the point of um, the, you know, the image that you show with sort of the proposed uh, facade treatment that, that, you know, you, that staff is looking for um, that shows sort of the articulation of the facade and pulling back of the upper story. I mean, those are quite helpful and really sort of giving a sense of what it is that that we're that the housing element is is trying to sort of uh, guide us to right and so i think that those certainly those solutions are much more palatable i i do f worry a little bit because we have to be mindful that you know those uh, those do come at a cost and they definitely you know but but i guess the if i understand city's city's perspective is well if we if we allow for a little bit more density um, to incentivize developers to to create these housing units, then you know perhaps we can ask a little more of them in terms of the design uh, aspect and make sure that what they come what they propose is something that is palatable and that we feel is is, is going to be at home and fit well within our within our city, right? Yeah, yeah, ab absolutely. Uh, uh Great comment on the on graphics. I mean, that's that's something we had discussed as well. Um, and then, of course, you know, just even though the city is required to plan for more housing, we're not compromising on design. I mean, staff, we we spent a, a lot of time and effort, the planning board, over several meetings on these standards. Again, it's something hard to get right. I mean, there's never a recipe for what's you know good design. And like Heather uh, explained in her presentation. What we're trying to do is set up sufficient standards to guide projects so that we we avoid the worst kind of situations. So, um, and you know, it, it is it is a subject matter that is uh, very difficult to tackle. So, um, appreciate the board's comments, and so far, all the comments are very good. Can Lizzie I uh, notes here. can I just ask a question about you know the affordability issue? Um, if you know, if we have a project that's 100% affordable housing or very high percentage affordable housing, is there a way that we could exempt it from some of these design standards to in a in a uh, effort to make it more affordable? Um, to have a uh, a reduced list of critical items, or I mean, put the burden on you know for-profit developers. Uh, you know, to meet our design standards, but where we're doing something that's affordable and, and really serving the community, uh, the larger community, um, to uh, make it a little easier. Yes, absolutely. And I think that was brought up. The plan board did talk about that very issue. Um, I think the counter argument to that is we also want our affordable housing to look like the best designs. Yeah. I think you and, need to have I, minimal standards for sure. Right. So it's, it's again, finding that balance, like what, what would be some of the standards would, and, and if, if it's a standard that we can um, waive for an affordable housing project, does it make sense to waive it for, for a, a market rate project? I mean, I think those are, those are um, questions worth asking. I mean, cause I think we want rigorous design standards in general, just so we have good design um, and quality projects. But again, you know, that, really hurts us in the affordable market. So, you know, we have to find some way of, of allowing those affordable projects to uh, be built. Yeah, and I would say it would have to be 
on items that don't compromise the quality of, of the building in general. Right? I mean, it's still good design, but it doesn't- Yeah, it's a tricky really... subject. Yeah, it is. <laughs> um, other comments from board members? I'm not seeing any hands raised. I can't see uh, board member Sanchez at all. So if you're raising your hand, just go ahead and speak up. <laughs> uh, no, I've had my questions. Thank you. Okay. Um, are there any other uh, topics tonight on the housing element that we, we didn't cover that we need to cover? None. I guess you know the the one the one comment I had, which I think I may have already made reference to, is that you know I'm 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 looking at the housing density, the uh, the upzoning issue is also sort of a I would prefer a much more targeted approach to zoning changes in Alameda. I'm really concerned about upzoning as being just having potential negative impact on our on our historic neighborhoods. And I think we've been much better served with, with targeted zoning changes or even, um, you know, just on, an, on a one-off, you know, as needed development approvals uh, for particular projects instead of upzoning our entire island. Um, it, it just, I, I think that, I don't think the citizens of Alameda want it. I, I, I think it's going to have a potential to uh, increase the number of buildings that will be demolished in favor of, of newer, higher density buildings. And um, I just think it's a bad idea. <clears throat> so those are my two cents. Uh, Board member Witt. Can I, so uh, in regards to your point, I was just wondering if, if, if how other communities are going about deciding making these decisions do they base it on the transportation as well or is that is that the is that the standard i think every community has every city has their unique challenges um, mm -hmm. but for the most part other communities are dealing with the very same issues right um, particularly in cities that are older that have a lot more development they don't have a lot of peripheral land to expand out to. Uh, conversations are about, you know, do we allow infill development in our existing neighborhoods and, and also at what intensity? So um, what we deal with here in Alameda and are, are really no different than some of the other neighborhoods. But, um, you know, I think, I think our approach from staff's perspective, our approach is very targeted. I was trying to pull up the, in the housing element, we have a table that lists how we approach the 5,353 units. And very methodically, we go through, okay, here are all of the approved projects. And these projects, if they come to fruition, we would get X number of units. And but, you know- But that's not right. You're taking every single zone in Alameda and increasing the density and, and permitted in that zone. It's somewhat speculative, but even then we are projecting three or 400 units. I mean, that covers a wide area of the city, but even then there are only 300. I mean, it's, 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 it's a conversation about 
so if we take it out of the residential neighborhoods, where do we have other sites to fit fit those number of units? And if we don't, then they would have to go somewhere. Well, we and have so the SB9 is, and we have the ADU provisions that are already in place. So that's part of the, that's part of the, our districts. It's in that same, it's in that, I believe it's in that same bucket. I, but without upzoning, that's what I'm saying. Uh, I, I would have to find a table to, to yeah. kind of look at the specifics, no, but, but I'll tell you, even with the ADU, I know there's public comment about, oh, your perp staff, you are purposely underestimating them, the ADUs, you know, because you have had a really good track record over the last three years. That's true. But I'll tell you to date in 2022, we're seeing I won't call it a recession, but in terms of permit valuation, we're already seeing a dip from uh, from a year ago. So far, we're, we're towards, what, six months into the year? We've issued six permits for ADUs. There's 30 applications on file still pending review. I hope we issue permits for those. But compared to the number we approved last year, I think it was 70, this is a drop. So, you know... Uh, I, which is why, you know, we're, we're taking a little bit more conservative approach because we, we know that, you know, this, the trend, that upward trend that we see in the last few years isn't going to continue over the next eight years. So, well, know, right now we're experiencing economic dip. So, right. And hopefully and that our, won't continue over the next eight years. <laughs> I hope so too. And, and our projection is still about 50 units a year. So, you know, I, I honestly, I feel like maybe the next couple of years would be, we'll get less than 50 units. So, which means at the later end of the eight years, we hopefully would make up for it or otherwise we'll have to find another way to make it up. So, and realistically, I don't know that we would see 5,350 units built in Alameda over the next years. I mean, that would be really unprecedented. Gordon Merlau. Yeah, Evan, you just mentioned about that. Um, because it's the ADU, right? So is it we uh, lose a little bit, like kind of like allow, like right now ADU is a maximum 16, right? For the height. So you allow more, I mean, more height, more high, and then like maybe can build like two unit in the ADU's concept, meaning like example in one building, right now they only allow the, the, the first, first story. They don't allow the second story. Is it in the future, maybe kind of at least lose a little bit more and I think maybe more owner or more people like to do more ADU for the certified for the um, the, the WIMA, yeah. Yeah, board member Lau, you, you touch on a, a very key subject about ADUs and, and an issue that we encounter almost on a daily basis in the permit center. Homeowners come in, they, they don't really want a big ADU, but given their lot configuration, the desire to save a little bit more yard space for a garden or the backyard, they want to go two stories. And currently our height limit is 16 feet, as you said, and it, it's you, very tight to do two stories. You may, you'll be able to do a single story plus a mezzanine, but it's really not a livable space where you have a room. So staff's proposal is yes, 180 use, you can go up to 25 feet, but there are some criteria for where you can place it. For example, you would have to have a rear guard setback. You can't put it up to the, the uh, property lines. Um, so in, in, re in exchange for a taller ADU, um, we're, we're, we're gonna have some requirements so that it, it, it be spaced apart from, from your neighbors. 
so yes, that's that's on the books today, and um, it's in the draft that um, that's going to the planning board um, Monday the thirteenth. Governor Sanchez. So a question regarding uh, ADUs. So of the 79 that were permitted last year, do you have any sense of how many of those have been constructed? Uh, I would have to check. I don't, I don't have that figure on top of my head. I mean, some, some might have started construction and have, are, under uh, are going through inspections. Others might not have started construction yet. Fair enough. Yeah, I mean, I guess uh, for me, the um, I think the ADUs are are one, you know, a valid solution. But I think uh, we have to be mindful not to put all our eggs in one basket, um, which I think is what what the housing element is trying to achieve. Right? Is to is to rely on a realistic number of ADUs, but not have it be the cure all for all of our our housing needs. Um, at least from my personal experience, I know that most of the ADUs we've worked on are clients that are interested in doing ADUs are not looking at them as rental units. Um, so I'm still in favor because I feel like somebody who might be using it as a home office today can, in the future, it becomes a housing unit uh, for a future homeowner or as their life situation changes. Um, but I can definitely say that a high percentage of the ADUs that people consider building are not, don't end up currently as rental units. And so I think that in terms of solving the immediate need of housing, uh, I don't feel like they serve that purpose immediately. I think that in the long term, they're going to help for sure. But um, yeah, that, that's, you know, my concern is that permitted units versus built units, I think that there's a discrepancy there. So I don't feel that 79 units are actually materializing to begin with. And then I wonder what percentage of those actually wind up being not short-term rentals, but actual rentals. And then the further problem of the high cost right now of construction and how many of those units are being rented at an affordable rate. So um, again, that they increase housing stock, they absolutely do, but that they provide or are a major solution to our affordable housing. Uh, crisis. I don't. I don't really see that as as being our our top tool to to achieve that. Well, one of the other uh, items we've talked about regarding that is is allowing unlimited density within existing building shells. And I'm not sure how the housing element addresses that, um, or if it addresses that. But uh, you know the potential for existing buildings in Alameda to contain multiple units. I mean, we've, we've seen many, many buildings converted to multiple units and there's just a large potential for more housing in that manner, which will be much more affordable uh, to construct and to, to rent. Um, any comments on that, Alan? Yeah, I, I agree, Chair Saxby. Um, and it, uh, I believe it's a program in our housing element and we have it in the draft um, zoning amendments that, that would allow unlimited addition of units within existing envelopes. Okay, great. So there was something about um, exempting adaptive reuse projects that I read, and I wasn't really clear if that was referring to what I'm talking about, which is because adaptive, exactly reuse, adaptive reuse doesn't really refer to 
converting a residential building to a residential building. It re refers to change in occupancy. And uh, so I'm not sure if that's the right terminology to use. Um, so, but I'm glad that it's in there. And maybe do that could you, be, maybe that could be clarified. Yeah, do you have a suggestion for a better title? I, I kind of agree. Uh, maybe that's adaptive not... reuse to me means like I did a project many years ago where we took a, a winery building mm -hmm. and converted it to a city hall. That's adaptive reuse. Right. You know, it's complete change of occupancy. Um, and residential, you could you could say that R three converted to R two. I don't know if that's adaptive reuse. Maybe that's that's. What do you think, Board Member Sanchez? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I would say that Rhythmics is another example of adaptive reuse, yeah. right? So an industrial commercial building being converted to uh, live work. Um, yeah, I would say that if you're going from single family residence to a multi-unit, it is a change of use. So I would I would say adaptive reuse is maybe okay. not, it, it's a loose term, it, it loosely applies, but I think it does apply. Okay, well, I just maybe, maybe make that more clear in the way that the, the, the um, it's described. Yeah, I, I guess I would say likewise, um, some of the housing projects that are mentioned um, out at the point, right? The old uh, old barracks, right? If they were barracks that are then converted into multifamily housing, I would consider that adaptive reuse as well. That would be in the spirit of what we're talking about. Right? Okay, well, thank you. Other uh, other comments, questions? I think if not, um, we'll leave the housing inlet discussion for, for another night or we'll see what happens with our comments from the state. Yeah, and I wanna thank the board for just all your time over the last three months on the providing comments. Um, we're taking good notes um, and on specifically on the objective standards, there isn't a specific timeline for the planning board to look at the standards, but um, I mean, I think I think first order of priority would be to get through the housing element. But I think once the housing element and the zoning standards are are in place, um, and again we've had some time to apply the objective standards to some projects and have some lessons learned, and we, we would then want to bring that back to the um, planning board and perhaps the HAB again for um, for more more input. So, but thank yeah, you well, for thank you for the comments tonight. They were very helpful. Well, I think. I think this board would like to to see changes in the future and and be a part of the discussion at least, um, just to make sure that the issues uh, under the historical advisory board are addressed. Absolutely, thank you. So with that, I'm going to close item seven A and move on to item eight, which is board communications. Do we have any board communications? I see. Uh, people are dropping out with a few. Okay, no board communications. Any staff communications? We don't have any uh, staff communications. Okay, then we brings us back to oral communications. This is another opportunity for members of the public to address this board on items that are relevant to the historical advisory board but are not agendized today. Um, do we have any speakers?
no speakers. Is that right? That is correct. Okay, <laughs> thank you. Well, and that brings us to uh, the end of our meeting. Uh, thank you, Ms. Coleman. Thank you everyone for participating and your comments and questions. It's a good discussion. Um, thank you, staff. And uh, see you all in July. We have any meeting in July, aren't we? Or do we not know? I don't think we know yet, but we, we may have a project or two that would need to come to the, before the board, but we don't have a good um, handle on the applicant's timeline yet. Okay. So, but, uh, but then otherwise, uh, August is summer recess. So if we don't meet in July, then um, the next available meeting date would be in September. Do we happen to know what the date is in July? It would be the 7th. So it's after the, the July 4th After weekend. the holiday. Okay. All right, great. Thank you, everyone. Thank Have you. A good evening. Good night. Go Thank Warriors. You. Thank, Thank you. you. Good night. <laughs> good night.